The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. That was Chinese Premier Li Keqiang laying out a plan to achieve 5.5% GDP growth this year, and he was speaking at a parliamentary session in March. The world will be hearing more from the Chinese government next week at the country's party congress, which will open up in Beijing. This week, we're drawing back the curtain on that event. Welcome back to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donnellan, coming to you from London. Much has changed since Lee spoke back in March. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created tensions between China and the West over Beijing's friendship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. My colleagues Robin Mack, Yao Chen, and Pete Sweeney have a lively debate about the big topics that are likely to dominate next week's event. China's Belt and Road Initiative, Taiwan, and the country's zero COVID policy. Hello from Hong Kong. I'm Robin Mack, and I'm joined by my colleagues Yao Chen and Pete Sweeney. Much anticipated 20th Party Congress scheduled for October the 16th in Beijing. Now, this happens once every five years, and for investors, political analysts, and China watchers both inside and outside the country, this is probably the top political event for China's Communist Party. Yao Wen, I'd like to start. Uh, with a question for you. So you were in Beijing covering the last Congress in 2017. So for those of us that aren't too familiar with what these are, can you just give us a brief overview of what it is? And more importantly, what actually happens during that week? Yeah, Robin, you're absolutely right. Like it's the most important event in China's political calendar because in China, I think the ruling Communist Party supersedes the government. So when they convince this big event that usually lasts for a week to discuss um, the priorities in all policy sectors for the next five years, to choose the you know most senior political leadership in the party that really has a lot of implication for both economic policy, social policy, and who will carry out all these um, responsibilities in the next five years. Um, so what usually happens is that on the first day of the party congress, which will fall on October 16th this year, President Xi Jinping is going to give a probably very long speech in 2017. It was like three and a half hours long. The transcript came to 69 pages and he will touch on everything from, you know, what China is doing uh, for its Belt and Road program overseas to like economic policy to Taiwan to everything. Um, so it will give investors a lot of, or China watches a lot of things to chew on. Usually it turns out to be pretty vague and it really depends on what signals you get. But internally, it's, it's this big document that will probably give all 2000 um, party delegates a lot of things to study over the you know following week. And during the week, uh, most of the events are closed doors. And I suspect that this year we're well, what's different for this year compared to 2017 is that China's zero COVID policies are really strict. So probably media wouldn't get as much access as I had in 2017, where you could doorstep delegates and you know chase people around in the Great Hall people um, and attending provincial or like ministry presses. 
Um, but behind, I, I think behind closed doors, what's going to happen is that they will deliberate on who will be elected into the party's most important organizations, like in the Politburo, um, the Central Committee, and these guys will go on to become, you know, government ministers or like head um, of the PBOC um, by next March. So we're going to get an idea of who will be in those very powerful committees by the end of the conclave. And there will be a half, usually a half day plenum where, you know, the seven most powerful politicians in China will work on a stage and greet reporters. And that's when we will know that who will also become the next president. So, yes. I mean, it seems like sort of this message and signaling coming out of this Congress is going to be very carefully managed. So is, is this meant for the domestic audiences in China or is this meant for international audiences? Like who is this, who is she speaking to? Well, obviously for both, but I think that for the domestic messaging, it's primarily for the party, like for the powerful class in China, because I still remember back in 2017, you know, when one of the important things that happened was that she didn't really nominate an obvious successor based on, you know, the, the leadership reshuffle. And then shortly after the party Congress, there was the scrapping of the presidential terms. But all that news are, are very carefully messaged to the public, the general public. I don't think a lot of people realized what happened at the time. And for the international audience, I think, of course, they want to broadcast, you know, a message on, you know, how the party views China's success for the past five years, what's the current situation. And um, they tend to try to support this image of, you know, China, China being be, being very strong and it's open to investment and it wants to be a peaceful power globally, that kind of image, especially in their English transcript. <laughs> so okay. I think there is a message for There's everything investors. Yeah. Everything for everyone. So, okay. Um, yes. I want to go back to the, the issue of succession because I think this is probably one of the most anticipated and closely watched issues. I guess the question comes down to she is widely expected to get another term. He, what is the significance of that? Well, yeah, so we should be clear. So she has a lot of jobs. This is about party roles. So he's, he's, his political role is president. They've passed an amendment that allows him to have a third term. It's important to understand that like in, in the Chinese political hierarchy or in the system, it's important for the leader to have a lot of different roles. Um, you need to be the head of the Central Military Commission, for example. And different leaders over time have been more or less successful, not only at getting their fingers into all these different positions, including you know, chairman of the party. Well, I mean, she she doesn't have that title right now. That was a title last given to Mao Zedong. But there's there's all sorts of positions that he has, both in government and in the party. And the party ones are the most important. People are also going to be watching you know, it, within the Politburo Central Committee, there's a the standing committee, the so-called PBSC. The standing committee is like seven guys and they're the most, they are almost always, they're always guys. They'll be the most powerful people in the country behind Xi and his ability to put his allies into those slots. The number of them could change even. They, there could be five, there could be nine. We don't know, but everybody in China is going to be watching very carefully because at the end of it, we're going to have some, these men will walk out on stage and we're going to know not only who are these people, we're going to be able to kind of tell how much influence she had over 
the process of putting his people into place, which will in turn help him drive through his agenda for his third term as president and so on and so forth. So clarify that for people not quite familiar because it's very important. Like that's what everybody's going to be watching. I mean, as, as Yawan said, a lot of the language coming out of this is going to be very general. They're not going to give like a GDP target. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to do, well, I mean, unless they do, they can say whatever they want, but ordinarily it's pretty vague. But they will they will show it will be this kind of demonstration of, of Xi's power. Well, yeah, for people outside of China, I mean, it seems like, you know, she's been in power for 10 years already. I mean, this third term, like, I guess it's unprecedented. So that's quite significant in that sense. But does it actually change anything if he gets a third term? That's the question. I mean, obviously, what would change things is if he doesn't get the third term. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that would be, uh, you know, it, it, it is possible that there is some sort of defeat brewing for him. Keeping in mind that, like, you know, Hu Jintao, his predecessor, was not a particularly strong president or, or leader because he was kind of denied some of these key party levers of power. So if she, you know, everybody expects him to continue to get the third term, but he could be weakened in other ways um, if he is forced to retire somehow, or if that happens, then that's an earthquake, right? I mean, just to refer to these bizarre rumors that were circulating about some coup in Beijing, she does what he does frequently, which is kind of disappeared from view for a couple of days. Everybody's like, oh, you know, there's tanks driving around in Beijing and there's a coup. Um, you know, you get these sorts of speculation, but just kind of shows how, how alert people are, you know, because the guy has made a lot of enemies. He had this massive anti-corruption campaign, jailed a lot of his opponents. I mean, when he took power, it was pretty violent. Uh, there were definitely tanks driving around Beijing then. Um, you know, what will he do, assuming he he wins and assuming that, like, the standing committee and his allies are moved into position more or less the way he wants? Um, obviously, he'll have to compromise with some various factions. Like, what is he going to do with it? Because one of the, the the theories has always been that, like, well, he's he needs to secure his back before he can do this, this, that, or the other thing. Yawin sort of wrote about this, you know, that, like, well, he's insecure. You know, he needs to he needs to secure his, and then he can execute these reform agendas. And he seems to continue to not really do that, per se. I would just um, say security is a very subjective term yeah, at this point. Exactly. Um, because I remember by 2017, everybody was saying, like, he's got power consolidated, you know, like there's no doubt that he might he might stay on. Um, I guess to your question, Robin, like to, to me, I think there are two layers of things, right? In the short term, what that means is that he's some of his very um, controversial policies like zero COVID, like property, um, de-risking the economy, all these very draconian policies might continue, just maybe in slightly different uh, forms and conditions. But in the longer term, this is precedent breaking, right? I think ever since Deng Xiaoping introduced this terms limit on all the senior officials in the 1980s, nobody has really commended this power. And, you know, I think the Chinese society now has to face a reality of we, we have we have a very powerful leader that, that might stay on for life. And what does that mean for for longer term objectives? Which There's a bit of a debate over can, how president yeah. breaking it is because, like, as, as Yawan said, it's, you know, Deng Xiaoping was incredibly powerful. He was never president, but he controlled everything else, you know, wrote and, and, and was basically in power for his, his whole life. You know, he was a super strong leader, you know, and absolutely changed the course of China. Mao Zedong was obviously quite powerful as well. You know, now she is. So we had this little interim period, you know, of some relatively weak presidents, you know, who were kind of pulled back after the Cultural Revolution. You know, Deng Xiaoping was very worried that that like it was 
too easy for a powerful leader to do all these radical damaging things. And you need more constraints and more checks and balances. But it does look like, but by some respects, this is China snapping back to the CCP snapping back to normal um, with a super powerful personality at the top who's just kind of driving the agenda across across the board with, with, with very little. Yeah, so let's talk about his, Xi Jinping's agenda, because, I mean, now when you mentioned COVID zero, you know, there's also sort of stress in the property markets. Um, you also have, you know, slowing economic growth. I mean, so what are what are some of the things that people are paying close attention to this year? I think, well, I think the most important thing is zero COVID for China, because, um, as as you might have noticed, like China's zero COVID effort actually has been intensifying this year. A lot of cities are going through mass testing every two, three days, um, frequent lockdowns. And to be honest, life has been really, really difficult. Like you can't even travel from one district to another district without going through very cumbersome process. So I think one thing investors want to have more answers about is how does China get out of this zero COVID situation, what are the milestones, what are the signposts for people to watch for? And I think by this point, the growing consensus that the party Congress is not the much hoped for signpost where people will be like, oh, okay, so President Xi again, and we, we might be able to ease because there's no political uncertainty by this point. My argument is that I think China has, you know, not put this political consideration as, as a precondition for easing zero COVID. I think it's more about in, in order to reduce death, then there must be some medical breakthrough for China, for example, having a domestic made um, more effective vaccine, have more hospital beds, um, have all the seniors in China, um, you know, upping their vaccination rate, which I, I think is still kind of slow at this point. So unless there's something like that happens, maybe the next hope will be like March next year when they have the national parliament meeting. I think the big question, I mean, for people inside and outside of China, but particularly pressing for people inside China is to the extent to which the CCP is kind of changing the deal it had with the people, um, you know, to deliver sort of economic goods in exchange for compliance, political control. Um, what we saw with COVID zero and with the property crackdown, which are happening kind of in tandem, um, this massive suppression of consumption, this massive suppression of economic activity, and the government has used its security apparatus to kind of shove it down people's throats. You know, you locked up an entire cities of 20 million people plus getting locked up in in their apartments. In some cases, you know, having to struggle to find food. And these are not, you know, these are like in Shanghai. That's that's the wealthy elite, you know, getting locked down. And I think, you know, the question is, what is she going to give in exchange, you know, for these sacrifices? Because the idea of the Chinese dream, which he pushed, which was, you know, that like the, the rejuvenation of the Chinese people was implicitly economic, right? He was saying, well, this is going to be good for everybody because Chinese people are going to have more money. He would go to like, you know, foreign companies, you would be able to export more to China because we'll have more money. We're going to escape the middle income trap. You know, we're going to be wealthier altogether. And so far, everybody is just getting kind of more miserable together. <laughs> So it'll be interesting. To, I think everybody is waiting to see whether and how he pivots. He's clearly very ideologically motivated. This guy is a Marxist. You know, he's not, you know, Marxist, Leninist, whatever. He's a he's a communist. He's not he's not a closet capitalist at all. And that's sort of sinking into people that like maybe he's actually serious about going after the rich people, and maybe he actually doesn't care whether we all you know can afford sports cars. Um, and the question is, what a generation of people. You know, who are brought up to expect they're just every year growth is going to be double digits and we're going to get richer and richer and richer are going to make of this kind of change. 
Um, but there are a lot of things that he can still do. You know, I mean, y'all and I are talking. There's there's lots of ways, you know, he can improve the social safety net, like Alan said. Declaring victory over COVID and retreating from these silly policies is another easy thing to do. Um, I don't see any political risk for him there. I have mixed feelings about the property crackdown, but certainly easing up on that somehow, putting a floor under prices. I mean, if, if Chinese households have 70% of their wealth parked in property, then maybe stop stemming the slide there would cause a little bit of, of relief. But yeah, yeah just to clarify, I think some of some of the policies that he has pushed for are, you know, have good intentions, right? Like the property yeah. market in China is very frothy. Like it, it just makes no sense that properties in Beijing and Shanghai are more expensive than London or New York while people are making much less, right? So Especially when you look at the apartments themselves, <laughs> like a lot of these things are really old dumps. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, so it's it's not, I mean, like she has correctly identified some of the imbalances in society. I mean, I think, you know, people are sympathetic when he goes after celebrities who haven't paid their taxes. The property sector has been this great engine for increasing the wealth gap. Like the more you can borrow and plow into it, you know, the more money you make off a property that isn't inherently made rich people richer and poor people who can't get access to housing have stayed flat. So there's all these things he's gone after. But then if you look at the way markets are behaving, if you look at the, in the condition of the Chinese economy, it is in really rickety shape. Um, the central bank has been forced to intervene in this blunt fashion to stem the, the route in the currency. Stock markets aren't doing very well. There doesn't seem to be any floor to the property slide in sight. And we know from experience in other economies what happens when you have a full-on property crash. It can take years to come out of. Um, so the, the economic situation is parlous. China's international reputation, at least in the Western wealthy developed economies, is in terrible shape. People are worried about an invasion of Taiwan. You know, everybody's very, very anxious about the direction she's been going. And now he'll have, if he gets power, I mean, the question is, like, at what point does he feel secure enough to say, okay, I'm not going to worry about people stabbing me in the back at this point. I can now start delivering the upside to all these crackdowns I've been having on technology companies or what you name it. Like we're going to we're going to flip over and, and there's a payoff at the end of it. And I personally, and I know I think all of us are going to be watching very closely to see any signs that that's, that's imminent. Well, actually, um, then let me ask as a final question. I mean, it seems like there's just so many uncertainties and unknowns about China and the economy. You know, is this Congress, like, is Xi's big speech, is it actually going to offer sort of the clarity that, you know, a lot of investors are looking for? Is this, or is this just, you know, anticipation? It's just going to under deliver at the end of the day. Like, are people going to have a different view of China on October the 17th, for example? I will be very surprised if there is any big surprise from the speech. But <laughs> that said, I think it's worth studying what direction it's taking, right? Like, because, for example, in 2017, uh, one of the big takeaway in hindsight was that he said, you know, China is entering a high quality growth period from a rapidly growing period, which means that China is willing to accept slower growth. And then you will see all these policies coming out that's more hawkish, that's more about, you know, correcting the imbalances rather than, you know, chasing growth. In fact, I think he fraud at all this capital running into, you know, venture capital money run, running into sectors that are not necessarily healthy. So I think there is a lot of things that is um, to be defined. Like, for example, what does it mean for common prosperity? What does it mean for self-sufficiency? I think we'll get some like more details and clues from that big speech he's going to give. We're also going to see what happens. I mean, so this is not a, a meeting to decide government jobs. Um, but like the main financial regulators, uh, Guo Shicheng, Liu He, who's like the economic czar, um, these guys have party roles. Um, so investors will see what happens to them in terms of 
you know, where they whether they step down, step aside, where they're put into and who kind of steps into their party positions in theory. So if there's movement there that I mean, this is all like reading tea leaves. You're going to have people who are going to like go through the document and look at the times like self-sufficient number of times self-sufficiency was mentioned or stuff like that. There's going to be all that sort of like exotic arcane analysis, but you'll be able to see where people move. And I mean, there's already tons of researchers out there saying, well, if this guy goes in, that means, you know, reform is dead or what? I mean, I'm exaggerating, but like you've got all these people who are looking very carefully, but you will see what happens with these these key people in the economic architecture and what happens to them uh, at this at this summit will be um, will be, you know, something that's unequivocal and, and fairly clear to see whether they're being demoted, shoved aside and replaced by people with similar qualifications or are they just kind of she flunkies that he knew back in his days in, in Zhejiang or something. OK, so thank you both for your time. And it looks like we're just going to have quite a lot to chew over after the 16th. So I look forward to our next podcast episode after that then. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on a cast, megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.